Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails, and the CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Our guest today is Kyle Robidoux. Kyle is a passionate runner and skier and husband and father and nonprofit manager and public speaker and beer enthusiast. He has also run 25 marathons and ultra marathons, including three 100 mile races and the Boston Marathon six times. Kyle also happens to be legally blind. Like the vast majority of us, Kyle grew up loving sports and the outdoors. But at the age of 11, Kyle was diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease and he was declared legally blind at the age of 19. And there are times when that loss of vision feels like the defining factor in Kyle's life, just as it would for the vast majority of us. But Kyle has been fiercely fighting this temptation to let the status of his vision define him, and I mean fiercely fighting. So in this conversation, Kyle and I talk about his background and his anger about his receding vision and what he did about that anger and what he continues to do about it. We also talk about his efforts to create more inclusive trail races and his advice to all of us about how to deal with loss of any kind and what specific things we all can do to be better to and more supportive of everyone dealing with loss or disabilities. I am very grateful to Kyle for his candor and his real talk. I think each of you will take away something important from this conversation, as I did, and I am looking forward to someday getting the chance to run or ski with Kyle myself, hopefully soon. And so, here we go. Kyle, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing great for a Monday morning in Boston, Mass. The sunshine is out, and ah. I took a little break from work to hang out with you. Oh, well, I, I appreciate it. Tell me, first of all, tell me what is work. So I work with the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, which is a nonprofit founded in 1903, based here in Massachusetts. And I help direct a one-to-one volunteer program, I do some age-friendly community planning, and then as part of the volunteer program, I also help recruit and train sighted guides to run through a website called United in Stride. How long have you been working uh, in this in in your role, and and what would we call your? Do you have a business card? What would it say? My business card would say Director of Volunteer and Support Group Services. And I've been here since October of 2013. Okay. So Kyle, let's talk about your background and story. Where do we begin? I think we begin in the state of Maine where I grew up. And I grew up playing every sport imaginable. If there was a ball, there was me playing alongside it with friends and neighbors and family. And I grew up 
you know, soccer, basketball, football, baseball. And then I started skiing when I was at age 11. Where were you skiing primarily? I was a weekend warrior at Sunday River Ski Mountain, which is in kind of central Maine. And we went up, my family and I went up and skied every weekend. I actually, I started skiing kind of the year after I was diagnosed with my eye disease. So we started skiing that following season, went up a couple times, used equipment from the 1960s. (laughs) And then the year later, my whole family had a season pass and we were up there skiing almost every weekend and every holiday. So you just named a bunch of sports. What were your top one or two? I love and continue to love baseball. That was by far my most favorite sport. And then once I started skiing, I absolutely you know, became hooked and loved skiing to the point where I dropped out of college for a year or two and actually moved to Sunday River. And I lived on the top floor of one of their ski lodges. And I ran a kitchen as a chef and a cook every night. And I skied every day that winter. Wow, that's pretty good. Okay, so you are, you start skiing at 11 years old? Yeah, 11 or 12, depending on the month. And this was just after you had received this diagnosis. Correct. So I was diagnosed. And then while we were at the doctor's office in Boston, like these fancy eye specialists, they recommended that my parents uh, get me skiing because in their mind, that was something that I could always do with or without my sight. Interesting. That's some pretty progressive doctoring there, I would say. It was great advice. Interestingly enough, it was the only advice they gave my parents or me for the 20 years that I received care there in terms of how to manage and live with my progressive eye disease. Okay, so let's talk about this. How rapid was this or has this degeneration been? So I was diagnosed at 11 with retinitis pigmentosa. And for the first probably five to 10 years, there was not much of an impact on my day-to-day life, except for I was unable to drive. I couldn't legally get a license at that time. And my night vision was very poor. So I could get by playing baseball games in the evening with stadium lights and so forth. But playing hide and go seek in my neighborhood at night was a no-go. That was pretty impossible. My friends would just leave me when I was it and they would just go home and I would be walking around the neighborhood for two hours trying to find them because they knew I would never be able to find them. And, um, you know, and then when I was originally diagnosed, they said I'd be fully blind by college. So that was a pretty big shock. And I surpassed that. And then they started saying, well, maybe in your early 30s, you'll lose all your vision. So thankfully, I had minimal progression in in the eye disease. And then it started to kind of pick up in my late 20s or early 30s. So I'm down to about a three to 4% field of vision. So I describe it as very kind of extreme tunnel vision in which I, my vision is similar to looking through a paper towel roll. And so just to get 
sort of clear on these details, the vision is pretty good through an extremely narrow field. Was that how you would describe it? Yes, that's a perfect way to describe it in terms that I have corrected 2040 or 2060 vision. So if I'm using my phone or looking at a computer screen, for the most part, I'm not using any assistive or adaptive technology. But if I'm looking at someone, I in a you know, normal kind of conversational space of a couple feet, if I'm looking at them, I may only see their nose or their glasses. And then when I'm skiing, I follow my sighted guides and I just look right at their boot bindings in the back of their skis. And when I'm doing that, I see absolutely nothing else around me or above me. I want to talk a little bit about what this was like for you from age, say, 11 or 12 to 16. I mean, you weren't maybe radically affected at those ages, but that's tough news, I would say. If I was 11 or 12 and had gotten that news, how did you handle that? How did you take it at the time? I handled that news by really not dealing with it. I mean, from a physical day-to-day perspective, my vision or lack thereof did not impact me. Sure, school dances were a little awkward at, you know, evening dances because I couldn't quite see everyone. But, you know, high school dances are awkward pretty much for everyone. So <laughs> I, I kind of made do there, right? Um, so I I just didn't think about it. Yeah. And I was able to get by by not dealing with it or thinking about it. And, you know, I have peers now who we kind of talk about, you know, what's harder, losing your sight overnight due to, an you know, an accident or progressive eye vision such as mine or being blind or being born without any sight. And they're all incredibly difficult situations to deal with. But for myself, at least with this progressive eye disease, I did not have to deal with it until it really started to impact me. And hindsight 2020, no pun intended, you know, that was a fatal mistake in which, you know, I got to my late 20s or early 30s and I was just so angry and bitter at the world for taking away all these things I love to do. I'm curious, one, when you talk about what has there or has there been sort of a consensus to this, what's harder, losing your vision over time or overnight? My sense is that you'll probably get a different answer from every person that you ask. You know, for me, my own personal perspective is that in the moment, I can certainly deal and manage with my vision loss in real time, but it continues to weigh on me long-term. And you can procrastinate and not think about it or not deal with it, but you always do have to adapt. Uh, And, but that at the same point, there's not that extreme, that immediacy to adapt right away because you can just keep on pushing things farther and farther away. Um, And that's, I think, a challenge because for me, and it's still hard right now, you know, I sometimes struggle with my trail running in which I love it so much, but I can right now, you know, I can stand on the top of a mountain and see the landscape and all these beautiful mountains and white tops and so forth. I just can't really see what's between me and there. 
Um, and I struggle with if and when I lose all of my vision, will I still love trail running and being in the mountains and the woods as much as I do now if I don't have that visual um, sensation that that provides? That's why I still keep my therapist in business. <laughs> <laughs> You're smart. Yeah. So is it better to lose one's vision overnight or is it actually somehow quote unquote better to lose it slowly or, or progressively? I think I would just immediately reach for, I'd rather lose it progressively because I'm just clinging and hanging on, right? Let me have mm -hmm. vision as long as possible. What as somebody who's living with that exact situation, help me understand what I am um, failing to understand about so quickly answering, I'll take the progressive loss. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would agree with you because that's also my current situation and that's my lived experience. So it's hard for me to place myself in someone else's shoes where they've lost vision overnight or they've never born with it. So I look at it from, so what's my perspective and what's my experience? And I am incredibly grateful that I've had as much usable vision as I do now. I'm very thankful that I am able to see my daughter who's just turned 12 last week grow up and actually see her because many years I did not want to have a child because I didn't want to kind of pass along my eye disease. So I'm thankful that I can be such an active part of, of her growing up um, visually per se. And I'm grateful for being able to explore and, and be as independent as I am now. I will share a story with you in which there is a woman who's become a very good friend of mine and she did lose her vision in her teens almost overnight. And I made a comment to her at one point saying, I'm very lucky to have the usable vision that I have now still. And her reply to me was, well, will you be unlucky when you lose your vision or if you lose your vision? And that was like a gut punch to me. I mean, I was so thankful that she felt our relationship was at a point where she could share that with me and push back on me. And I think about that all the time and it helps me reframe, you know, my outlook right now is just be, you know, take advantage and be grateful for what I have and live in the moment as much as I can while also planning for future changes. It's got to be a just part of your experience interacting constantly and every single day with people who happen to have pretty good vision. And I've got to think, you just got to be thinking in the back of your mind, like you just don't appreciate what you have right now, or I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm just, I'm imagining, um, I think a lot of times we're very bad at being grateful. And I also think we often are bad at imagining how grateful and how good life can be whether there has been a loss of vision or the loss of a limb or there's all kinds of losses, right? That everyone experiences in life. But I don't know, is that a thing for you where you kind of find yourself maybe sometimes thinking like, oh, you poor person who, you know, whose stomach was a little upset on that trail run you just did. Seriously, you want to complain about that right now? I try and I try to just focus, I have enough going on in my own head and my own body and feelings not to get overly caught up in what other folks 
are either experiencing or, or the benefits that their site or their health provides. I am, you know, and it, it's still a work in progress. And, you know, therapy has helped and trying to have a more positive outlook, you know, and like you mentioned, it's, it's, it's all walks of life. So when I'm sick, you know, my stomach is just killing me just due to the flu. I certainly, the light dings in my head and be like, Ooh, I should be really mindful and grateful when I am healthy and remember how great that feeling is compared to now. So I think part of that happens in all walks of life, but you know, I don't, for me, I just try to focus on ways for me to kind of push through. And it's also a big reason why I do the ultra running and the hundred mile races that I do, because it is a reminder that life isn't always perfect. Just like a hundred mile race is not always perfect. And that discipline and that awareness, I feel like impacts our entire life, whether it be our work or family or social relationships or relationships that things are always going to be up and down. So that's kind of how I spend, you know, a lot of my energy of just, you know, trying to stay positive and, and be mindful of, you know, the things that I have right now. I want to ask you about your late twenties and early thirties. That's the point of time in which it was pointed out to me how angry I was and how bitter I'd become. I, at that point, my late twenties, early thirties, you know, I wasn't playing recreational baseball anymore and skiing was down to maybe two or three times a year and focused much more on socially, you know, going skiing for the weekend with friends or family members versus going skiing and skiing to my ability and, you know, ripping the mountain like I can. So that was really hard for me. I found myself not enjoying going skiing because it just constantly reminded me of the way in which I used to be able to ski and pissed that I could no longer do it. And, you know, thankfully, you know, I had family member, you know, who pointed that out to me and it was, it was a hard thing to, to realize, but I also knew that for myself and, you know, my relationships and so forth, I had to pursue some sort of, uh, you know, alternative course to deal with it. And I think that going back 20 years, you know, the way in which I just kind of repressed those feelings, those social emotional feelings around my vision loss. Um, that's where I found that, you know, talking about that or not talking about it more importantly for 20 years finally caught up to me. What did you do? I start, I mean, I sought out a therapist and I started therapy for, you know, a couple of years. And I remember the first time I sat down with the therapist who was a friend, you know, referral through a friend. And he said, Hey, I have no experience in vision loss. My specialty is anger and loss. He's like, my gut tells me that it's all relevant regardless of if it's a loss due to death or, you know, disease or whatever it may be. He's like, so I think I can help you. You know, so we just started talking through it and he was incredibly helpful in me and in, in working with me to kind of change my perspective and it came full circle. And at the end of that, you know, through a lot of hard work and self-reflection and therapy and support from my family, I did realize that I, what things that I love to do weren't being taken away from me more so than I was giving up on them. I mean, if someone is just learning about you and your life and what you're up to now, it all looks pretty wildly proactive, right? 
and maybe that was a bit of the the switch when you just said like I was these weren't being taken I was giving up it's like well you sure as hell aren't giving up right now right I mean you're finding new and many and different ways to be getting out there and continuing to participate in these activities that you love is is that a fair way to think about this shift it is it's an accurate way to think about it and I'll say I'm really honest and you know the work that I had to do and the support I had to get there and when I learned you know to sum it up in a short word was I, I had to learn how to adapt and that part of it was you know running or running with sighted guides and then starting to ski with sighted guides as well and asking for help a little bit more using my white cane more often or using it at all you know my white cane was just sitting in my bureau drawer and I wouldn't take it out because of the shame I had with that while also recognizing that I would bump into people all the time and I would fall off curbs so you know that shift it, it took a lot of work but and support and it continues to do that like I mentioned earlier you know I'm still you know, I have a lot of feelings around, you know, continued loss of my vision and, you know, just how strong mentally I'll be and being able to continue to adapt, you know, particularly in the workplace is, you know, the biggest concern right now, but also with family and my running and so forth. So it's like everything in life, it's it's a work in progress. We never have it all figured out. And I say this a lot when speaking with young people as well, is that, you know, social media has tremendous benefits, you know, in terms of being connecting and networking and so forth. But it also has this platform where you can kind of paint a life that is wonderful. And you also see folks who are blind or visually impaired are doing amazing things. But you also don't see kind of those lows that we have. And, you know, they're real. But my commitment to myself right now is, you know, embrace, know that those lows and those points of depression will certainly happen, but training myself and most importantly, my mind to recognize when those low points are happening and work really hard to move through them, just like I do in a hundred mile races. It is of, of everything you just said, the thing that I just really strikes me is this idea, you said, you know, I feel shame using a white cane. And it's like, how messed up is this? And also 100% true. But how messed up is this that how on earth and why on earth should anybody feel shame? And probably I would feel exactly the same way. So why is this? If I had the answer to that, I think I would be the therapist making a lot more money than I am right now. I, I think part of it is the way society looks at people with disabilities or people who look different than we do, whether that, you know, is race or class or someone with a, with a disability. And, you know, I now know that if I walk into a room and I have my white cane out, then I'm going to be looked at differently in that moment that I step through that door. And I think... It's also different for me where right now I can still choose how I walk through that door. You know, I can still get by without my white cane at times. So I can walk into a conference room at my work where I don't use my white cane because I know all the spaces and all the stairs. And I'm looked at differently if I was to walk into that room with a white cane, not necessarily by my coworkers, but people that don't know me. Um, you know, and so I think a big piece of it is just society and how, and how we look at it. And I think the goal for me is to raise 
enough awareness and keep on kicking those doors open as hard as I can with my peers and, and allies and getting to a place where I'm just the skier or I'm just the trail runner. And after that comes my vision loss and the ways in which I have to adapt. So are there your top one or two suggestions for, you know, when you do walk into this, these rooms, what would you most uh, suggest or would appreciate if the folks in that room would do or not do? I think that's a great question. I mean, in the micro level, I think it's just, you know, asking if I need support and letting me figure it out if I, depending on what my answer is, like yes or no, like, oh, do you need help with a chair? And I can say no. Or oh, do you need any support? I can I can say no. Uh, or yes, depending on, you know, my mood and what I actually do need. But I think on the bigger picture and the macro level is that, you know, in our country right now, particularly, you know, the climate in which we're in, we just got to start talking to one another. We have to have to start, have to have start having conversations with people who don't believe in the same things that we do or don't look like we do or may not eat the same food or vote the same way. And I am a big believer that, you know, through conversation becomes understanding and we may not agree on everything, right? Uh, but we'll have a lot more of an understanding of kind of where we're people are coming from if we just start talking to them and asking questions. And I sometimes get really upset where I hear, you know, seven or eight year olds, they ask the best questions, right? Mommy, why has he got that stick? And it breaks my heart when I hear parents say, oh, Johnny, don't ask that question. And sometimes I'll turn around and I'll call them on it and say, no, that's a great question. Please ask me, right? Because I want the opportunity to answer that question and have a little bit of a conversation rather than the shame of the parent saying, you know, no, don't ask that question. Um, you know, so just talking through these things and learning more about who I am and where I'm coming from. And I, I think over time, for me, that's where I experience the shift from, you know, Kyle, the blind runner, to Kyle, the runner, who happens to be blind. I mean, it sounds like maybe point one then from what you just said is, it sounds like maybe you get the sense that there are people when you come into a room who are either hesitant or reluctant or refuse to just come say hello because, you know, it's like, oh, there's a white cane. This conversation might not be the run of the mill every like, how's your day going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Sweet. Later. Like surf. It's like, I suppose people maybe are trying to avoid deeper, less surfacey conversations. And, you know, they're like, well, I can avoid getting into a deeper conversation if I just don't come up and say hello. Yeah. I think, it, I think that definitely happens. And I don't know enough of what's happening in people's minds to kind of say why it happens. You know, so for me, you know, my commitment is really just to continue showing up. Right. So you you're you're in that space and get more of my peers to be in that space. And certainly, you know, I look at a lot of things through the lens of running now. Right. But, you know, I don't want to be the only runner to do X, Y, Z race. I want to be there with five or six of my peers doing that race and getting to a place where it's it's 
commonly seen that there's folks who are blind or visually impaired lining up for a 5K or a 10K or a marathon or a 100-mile race. Um, I know it takes away from the question a little bit in the workplace, but, um, you know, that's, I think the more my peers and my colleagues who are blind or visually impaired are, are in at least my workspace, I've seen a huge shift. You know, the more folks you have are blind or visually impaired in the room, you know, the more that people are, and I say forced, not in a bad way, but forced to kind of interact and deal with their own preconceived notions. So let's back up and talk a bit how you first got into running and when, how and when. So I, because of all the sports I played growing up, I ran all the time and it was more so for fitness and get in shape. It's like, Ooh, it's August. I have, you know, soccer, double, double trials, double practices. Uh, I got to start running to get in shape. But shortly after, you know, I started working with a therapist and, and dealing with my anger and stuff. I, you know, realized that I was 250 pounds and had an incredibly high blood pressure and cholesterol was being pushed to take cholesterol medicine at a really young age. And I was on the path to type two diabetes, which my father has. So family history there. And my daughter was two at the time. And I was legit having a hard time playing with her. So I knew, I knew I needed a change. So I just started walking in 2010. I started walking during work and then progressed from there, running five minutes and 30 minutes with a Timex Ironman watch. And I joked when I ran for two hours, I said, wow, I should sign up for a race because when am I ever going to be able to run for two hours ever again? So I, my first race was in 2011, the Portland, Maine half marathon. 2011 Portland, Maine half marathon. And how did that go? My goal at the time was to run under two hours. And I think I did like 202 or 203 maybe. So I was pretty, pretty darn close. But, and, you know, I also think it's important to say that when I first started running, I was running without sighted guides. And that race I ran with my sister-in-law, you know, we kind of like agreed to run side by side. And she certainly helped me out in the crowds a little bit. And I remember at like mile 10, I was feeling really good. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to take off and run these last three miles hard. And I, the minute I took off from her, like a quarter mile later, the shift, the, they moved everyone in the course from like the right lane all the way over on the other side of the street. I remember I had to like jump over a curb and I was like, damn, figures. Like the moment I leave my sister-in-law, I have to like step over this curb. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience. And obviously it motivated me to continue running. Yeah. And I mean, so did you kind of like rocket ship ramp up uh, the number of events and races you were competing in then? What did that progression look like from your first to where we are today? Because I was still using a Timex watch at the time, I really didn't know mileage that I was running on a week to week basis. So everything I did was based on time. So if I ran, you know, an hour and a half on a Saturday, I wanted to run, you know, an hour and 45 minutes the following Saturday. So I think that actually was a governor to hold me back and, and keep things on a, on a good, healthy progression. But I do remember, you know, after that half marathon is kind of when the marathon distance first popped up. And 
I signed up for, I think, the, my first marathon essentially a year from, you know, the October-ish of 2012 is when I set a goal to run my first marathon. So I think it was a decent, healthy buildup. Talk a little bit about some of your favorite races or accomplishments or finishes. Um, give give folks a, an overview of what you've been up to. So we're going to ask you to throw like throw your humility cap, you know, throw that on the floor somewhere far away. Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> I think you know my first marathon stands out. It was the Mount Desert Island Marathon in Midcoast, Maine, and it's still probably the most gorgeous marathon course I've ever run. It it skirts around Acadia National Park, so that was just gorgeous. And my goal at that marathon was to run under four hours, and I think I finished 356 or 358. So that was you know a wonderful experience and a boost of con- confidence. And then I'll never forget running my first Boston Marathon. I've now run six in a row, but my first Boston Marathon, I was guided by my brother and my sister-in-law. So that was a great experience to be out on the Boston course, my hometown. First time out there, have two family members guiding me while I'm doing this. And, you know, getting to the 40K mark, feeling relatively decent, I thought was a huge accomplishment. And I was fine dying the final you know, mile and a half to two miles. And then I started running trails. And I remember the first 100K I did actually took me 25 and a half hours to run 100K. And my commitment to my daughter before that race was that I would finish the distance even if I timed out. And I did, I missed the cutoff. It was like an 18 hour cutoff, but it's a small local, you know, our local trail running group. So they were happy letting me extend. Um, but it took me 25 and a half hours to finish that race. I've since finished two or three hundred mile races under that 25 hour mark. Um, and then other races, you know, running Trans Rockies, which was a six day stage race through Colorado, uh, was an experience I'll never forget. And again, you know, I try to be as honest and real with my vision as possible. And I, I pursued Trans Rockies because I can still see landscapes and beautiful mountains and I never spent any time in the Colorado Rockies. So I really wanted to participate in that race. And I had a great buddy of mine who uh, volunteered to guide me all six days. So, you know, the community, the social aspect of Trans Rockies uh, combined with the trails was simply amazing. And then, you know, running my first hundred miler, Vermont 100, you know, kind of the biggest 100, 100 mile race in New England was uh, an experience that I'll I'll never forget. You know, the race director, who is now a very good friend of mine and also a sighted guide of mine, she volunteered to guide me for the first 15 miles of a race. And I don't know if you'll find many race directors who are like, well, I'll take, you know, I'll guide you the first 15 miles. And her response was when I said, well, how about the race, right? You know, and she's like, hey, if something happens within the first 15 miles of this race, I haven't done my job as a race director. And, you know, for her to be able to experience the race in that way, I think was a treat for her and also a huge honor for me to to run with her on that. We need to talk about the Vermont 100. Like I said, I told you, throw the humility hat far away. This is a super hard course, right? There's a, there's a root and rock 
I believe. There's one or two of those uh, that you might find on this course. It is a challenging course. It is overall pretty runnable, which is kind of why I picked it. I intentionally picked it as my first 100 miler. It does have 17,000 feet of climbing. (laughs) So you never underestimate how many god-awful steep dirt roads, backcountry dirt roads in the middle of nowhere there are in Vermont. (laughs) And then there is a significant, about 30% of the course is on kind of single track. So there are roots and rocks you know, laid all throughout the trail. Also, the same thing that happened in, in Trans Rockies as well. So my guides, when they, my trail running guides, all my guides are amazing, whether it's running on roads, particularly in the city or on trails. But, you know, my trail guides, they're on the entire time, just literally calling out, you know, roots, rocks, go left, step up, step down, big root, smaller root, big rock. And they have their work cut out for them your job in that partnership and their job in that partnership both sound (laughs) too hard for me. I think I would not be good at either. Yeah. I mean, I I tell everyone that if you know your left and rights, you can be a good sighted guide. And the best thing about being, you know, having to run with a sighted guide is that it turns running, which is a very individualistic and solo sport. It turns it into a team sport. And I love that. I absolutely benefit from that, you know, for the entire time of a hundred mile race, I always have someone with me. And even though their primary job is to guide me and tell me what's in front of me, I certainly benefit from their companionship through those times. And I always have someone to talk with. It's just inherently beneficial in that way. Flip the coin a little bit. And, you know, this is where we talked earlier about, you know, the pros, like the evolution of my mindset is that are there times that I wish I could just experience trails, trail running like everyone else, you know, every trail runner you talk with like always references the solitude of being out on the trail by themselves in the middle of the night. And I certainly yearn for that and I miss that. But right after I say that, I'm like, well, I'm also really lucky and fortunate to still be doing what I'm doing and being out on the trails, whether it's by myself or, or with a sighted guide. And there are times where I tell my sighted guide, like, oh, just run up. I'm going to stand here, just go up a couple hundred yards. And some of them are like, what's going on? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I just need to get in my own head by myself for a minute. So just, you know, give me a minute. And there'll be times like that where I do that purposely to, you know, just to, whether it's, you know, changing the channel in my head and my attitude in a long race, or if it's just simply you know, resting and breathing and listening to, you know, the environment and the woods around me without, you know, my guides calling out and talking what, what, you know, so I'm able to build that in where needed. Want to back up one more time. We went real fast over this transition from running road races to your first trail race. How subtle or significant was that difference when you went from road to trail? So in between there was kind of an ultra road event. So I was becoming bored with, I'd run, I think five or six marathons and I was becoming bored with marathon training. I, you can always train and run faster and and train harder, but the structure of a marathon training was boring to me. So I needed something different. So I signed up for a 12-hour ultra race. And I, again, purposely picked out a race that was, it's a 5K loop. 
and it was mostly pavement. You know, it ran around a lake, so it was a paved path with maybe 200 yards of dirt gravel. So I tried that out first just to get comfortable and learn about the distance, and that met every single goal I was looking for and, and specifically training. It reinvigorated my training. So from there, the natural next step was to get into trails. I grew up in Maine, so I, you know, spent all my life, you know, not necessarily hiking in on trails, but I spent it in the woods, whether it was riding BMC, you know, BMX bikes or running and playing and that sort of stuff. So I transitioned to trails and the short version is I actually DNF'd my first two trail races that I signed up for. They took way longer than I thought and my head just wasn't in it. And I think if I did not have the trail 100K already on my calendar, I probably would have bailed on trail running in general. When you say you just weren't kind of mentally prepared for it, I mean, how good of an analogy is this? I mean, if anyone listening to this goes and thinks about a sort of moderate trail run that they might do regularly, and then we put a blindfold on them, just all the variations in the terrain itself feels kind of right now relatively impossible to imagine navigating that, um, and especially the first time attempting to navigate that. Was that the primary factor, or were there other elements? I think one, just taking away the analogy of, I think running on terrain that you're not comfortable with or not, or you don't know what's there, I think is a great analogy. The blindfold one doesn't hold up just because I do have usable vision. And, you know, 5% of folks who are quote unquote blind are what we call totally blind. So that means 95% of people have some usable vision. So it's not like running in a blindfold for most of us, not all, but most of us. So, you know, I tell folks when I'm training them, if you want to get the experience, what it's like, you know, just pick your head up and have someone guide you while not looking down. Certainly look down if you want to feel safe, um, you know, but I don't actually recommend folks closing their eyes just because the safety issue, I don't want to be liable for that. But also it's not a fair representation of, of how I run. But, you know, for me, it was a huge change and one, my guides, I originally just started to have my road guides guide me in trails. And I quickly realized that it's just a whole different dynamic. And my road guides are amazing, but your legs have to be trained to run on trails. Your ankles have to be trained to run on trails. You have to be comfortable walking and hiking and fit to, you know, fitness. I think all my guides fit can, can handle it. But so it's just different. And then the technique in which uh, was different. So when I road run, in short, I run side by side with my guide and I'm tethered by a string. And when I trail run for now, I actually run behind my guide by myself and I just follow two steps behind them and they call out everything. And I know I have for the most part, two strides to step over whatever they're calling out. And then they call out the left and rights. However, as my vision continues to decrease, I have been thinking about, you know, starting to run side by side with my guides. Um, but that's a different dynamic because it makes single track much more challenging for them because then I'll be on the single track and they'll have to be like hopping through bushes and brush and all that, which is not ideal. And then for me, it was just the time. I was out on the trails way longer than I thought. I was falling and skinning my knees and banging my head all the time. And so I just needed a big adjustment. And, you know, and time-wise, 
it's always a variable that I can't predict. For example, you know, I ran the Yeti 123 hours and 10 minutes, and that was, you know, walking the last two miles because I'm like, ooh, I met my goal. So I probably could have got, you know, 2250 at Yeti 100, which is, you know, middle of the pack. And for a race like Vermont 100, you know, I ran 2810. You know, so that's a five-hour difference. So mentally, you just have to be prepared to, for me, depending on how the course is, I have to be prepared for just spending a lot more time out there and a lot more time hiking and walking the technical stuff to the point where, you know, if I know the course well enough or if it's, say, like a 50K, you know, I'll really run and run hard the runnable stuff to the point where I'll be passing folks and I hear them whisper like, Oh, he's going out way too fast. He's going to burn out. But what they don't know is that, you know, three miles up, there's a technical section that I'm going to have to walk. So I might as well spend that time hammering when I can't hammer. Cause I know I'm going to be, you know, I have a built in governor up ahead of me. I got to ask you about Western States. Talk to me about your experience there. I am now at a place with Western States where I can confidently and altruistically say it was a wonderful experience. I've learned that experiences are defined by more than your finishing time or finishing at all. So just experiencing Western States, the hype, the community, the amazing volunteers and the course support and the people who've been part of Western States for years and years and learning about the history and now being part of that history was a huge experience for me and a wonderful experience. And the ability and opportunity to raise awareness about runners who are blind and visually impaired and sighted guides was huge. And you can't quantify that regardless of how the race came out. And Yes, I was very lucky to have guides like Scott Jerk and Chrissy Mail, but I also had three or four other guides who were just as talented who took time out to be there and time away from work and their family or their race directing or their own racing to be out there with me. And, you know, that's a really special thing, including also having my family out there. So overall, it was a great experience and one that I will never, never forget. Was this Scott's first time? working as a guide? No, Scott is a very experienced guide. He has guided in the Boston Marathon probably twice, the California International Marathon. If I had to guess, CIM probably two or three times. He's guided in Boulder where he's lived. He's guided on the AT trail. He actually guided a runner who's blind during his AT attempt. Uh, the run, yeah, which, you know, is amazing to think of how beat up you are and just how out of it you are. And there he was, you know, sharing the trails with a runner who's blind and he was guiding him. So, you know, he's been a great ally of our community, both in terms of, you know, lending his time and sharing his sight as a guide, but also agreeing and being open to, you know, using who he is as a platform to raise awareness about being sighted guides and raising awareness about United in Stride, which helps connect guides and so forth. So, you know, we're really lucky in the guiding community, particularly in the ultra running community. There are just too many elites for me to mention who have guided, but I'll try, right? So there's, you know, Mike Wardian has guided at CIM and the Boston Marathon. Zach Miller guided at a half marathon in Colorado. Chrissy Mail has guided. Um, 
you know, again, I know I'm leaving out a ton of folks, um, but it's really cool, particularly in the ultra trail running community, how, you know, these elite runners are, you know, always willing to guide. And I think part of it is because they're always running a crap ton of miles. So <laughs> their, their fitness is there, it's you there. know, you know, and I also think they're not on, you know, like a, as a strict training regimen as some of the road racers, particularly the road marathoners are. So very blessed and very lucky for, you know, Scott and, and so many others to, to help out as guides. So what are the traits of an absolutely top shelf guide? I think one, I mean, I define it by kind of baseline. So I think folks need to know their left and rights. Folks need to be strong communicators and they need to be open to constructive feedback on ways to improve. And I also find that hikers and folks who have experience hiking and or trail running are make really good guides on trails because the whole point of guiding me or the whole goal is guiding me through the path of least resistance. And I, I find that hikers are always looking for that small little seam that has less rocks than others. So, you know, if we're on a double track, it's, you know, pushing me and saying, oh, you know, take two steps to your left. There's a better seam here, or we're going to get off this off camber stuff. Um, but, you know, in short, it's, you know, patience, communication, left and rights, and then, you know, fitness, but fitness only to the extent that you need to be in better physical shape than the person that you're guiding. But that could mean, you know, if you're guiding someone who's running, you know, a five hour marathon, you just, you know, you need to be in shape for, you know, four and a half mile or four and a half hour marathon. So, you know, guides come in all and runners who are blind or visually impaired. There's walkers, there's five Kers, there's marathoners, there's ultra runners and so forth. And there's all sorts of distances that we're looking for. Any races on your bucket list? I not so much of a race, but I really want to run in the Marin Headlands in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Everyone says it's just a simply beautiful uh, part of the country to run in. Seems like it, the terrain there is a little bit more runnable than the New England type style races in, in trails. So I'm hoping to get out to the. I've been invited to participate in the Miwok 100K in May, which is through the Marin Headlands. So between that and or the North Face 50 mile challenge, I'm, I'm hoping to get out to San Francisco sometime soon. I would love to run in the, you know, through Utah, get back out to some of the national parks there and do more running than sightseeing that I've done in the past. And where are you currently with respect to your own running? Where are you looking to improve the most? Great question. I mean, I, for me, it's, I can always improve my training. I put in the mileage and I run a lot. I have a tremendous amount of area to improve on turning the quality, quantity miles into quality miles, which I actually, I did for Western States. I feel like I cut out a lot of the junk miles and had some really good quality miles, even though I hit the highest mileage, you know, I had two or three 80 mile weeks, but they were all pretty pretty quality, but I always need to improve that. I also need to improve just the, my efforts during training runs. And, you know, I can get pretty complacent of, oh, I'm going to run 15 miles today. And I don't necessarily care how those 15 miles look. 
um, you know, so I've just in the past like three weeks started building in some more tempo miles in the middle of long runs just to keep it interesting and to push my fitness. And then I do have historically and kind of chronically really bad ankles um, through skiing and playing soccer as a kid and never you know, I would always get injured, but never fully recover. Um, so my ankles are trashed, which as my orthopedist says, or my ortho specialist, who's incredibly supportive, um, he does joke and say, you've picked the absolute worst sport to participate in because between your eyes and your ankles, there's no way you should be trail running. So, uh, but he'll work with me on and ways to improve that. So I always need to, I, sp- I need to spend a lot of time strengthening my ankles and my balance and my core are off the charts um, weak. And although, you know, for Western States, I'll say, you know, I, I didn't finish. I got timed out at mile 15 and a half and a, big part of that was the snow conditions and just the inability for me to, to handle the snow. And I'm also not naive enough to know that with improved fitness around my balance in my core, it couldn't always help me in areas like that as well. Skiing these days versus trail running. I guess I'm going to assume that the trail running is trickier for you. Is that right? (laughs) It's trickier for me in, you know, handling terrain and the amount of times I fall and turn ankles and that sort of stuff. But the risk for the risk is much greater when skiing and it's also greater for other people, right? So it's, I will never care. You know, if I'm trail running, I'll say trail running, I've usually only hit myself. There's a couple times maybe I've like tripped and fell into my guide and taken them down. But usually it's just me wrapping myself around a tree or, you know, hitting my, you know, falling down and tripping. Um, you know, but for skiing, like I'm fine running into a lift line pole or skiing in the woods and hitting a tree, but it's a whole different story if I run into someone else, particularly a kid out in the mountain. And, you know, so with the speeds at which I'm skiing or that everyone skis at, it's always on my mind. And I'm, have always been a cautious skier, even way back in the day where my sight didn't necessarily impact me. I was always, I think, cause that was in the back of my head. You know, if I was coming over a big knoll, you know, I'd always have a spotter. Um, and I do get really nervous about uh, running into someone. So I think the risk of skiing and, and hurting someone else is much greater. Are you involved in thinking about how ski areas or guiding outfits at ski areas could reduce this risk? That's a great question. I feel like, you know, I ski a lot with Vermont Adaptive uh, Ski and Sports and also with the New Hampshire Healing and uh, Ski and Sports program out of Mount Sunapee. They do a great job. You know, there's new technology. Folks, most adaptive ski programs use headsets now. So there's two-way communication between the skier and the guide, which really helps because they can, you know, tell you, oh, we're getting, it's getting crowded and we're going to slow down here. Or there's a small group of kids to our right. We're going to hug the trail a little bit more to the left. We're going to try to scoot around them. So just being aware that what's around me is, is great in the communication there. And I also think it's why adaptive ski programs, you know, they don't push, but, you know, I think they would prefer folks to come on week, weekdays versus weekends. And 
for, you know, Vermont Adaptive, they prefer to only do lessons, you know, at Pico, not always at Killington because Killington is so big and so crowded, which, which I get. Um, but they're also open. Like I skied Killington with them last year. So they're open to give me a guide. So it's hard, but no, I joke. I say, man, I wish I had enough money. Like my ideal skiing environment would be if I had enough money just to buy the mountain for the day. And if there's no one else on the trails, um, because that's how I ski. I mean, most of the time when we start coming down a trail, um, I ask my guides, is there anyone else on the trail? And if they say no, I ski so differently than if there's other people on the trail, just because I'm, I'm not less cautious, but mentally it doesn't wear on me as much. Um, and even so, you know, and there are sometimes if the trail is wide open, you know, I send my guide down, you know, 300 yards and have him stand there and I can see him all the way down there. I may not be able to tell the terrain between he and I, um, or she, but then I can just ski and make my own turns, man. And that's when I love it. You know, I can do, I can snap a couple quick turns or just some crew, some big GS turns. And it's me deciding which turns I make, which is, um, you know, that's when I just, I love it. Yeah. Um, even though I've completely fallen back in love with skiing since I've been skiing with seat, uh, guides because, you know, they're so talented that, you know, I can get a guide for any ability. So I can ski pretty much any trail I want. Um, you know, job is to make sure that I'm safe and others are safe as well. Yeah, it was actually, I worked in an adaptive ski program for six seasons. Um, but I was always doing the, the buy ski, the sit down ski. And, uh, so usually was working with folks who'd had, you know, were had been paralyzed or partially paralyzed and, and, um, but yeah, the, the, uh, the vision impaired stuff, um, very, very cool. And, and it's very cool to see these programs, I think, growing and expanding. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're experts, man. You know, I do, like I mentioned, I mean, I run United in Stride, which is a website to connect sighted guides and runners. So I train sighted guides all the time and the way that United in Stride works is also you may not be trained if you're in a country or state that I'm not in, obviously. Um, you know, so people often ask, like, oh, what's the training for a sighted guide? I'm like, oh, just go out and run, you know, start on a track where it's safe and then move from there. Whereas with ski guides, you know, they go through all this, you know, certifications and multiple levels of certifications because, you know, it's serious business being out there. And, you know, my hands, not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, my hands and the hands of others in the hill are kind of the fate of us are, are in the guide's hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are going to be part of a panel presentation coming up. I think it's on October 9th at the U S trail running conference. Uh, talk to me a bit about that. Yeah. So super excited. I don't know how many years they've been doing the U S trail running conference, but it's an opportunity to bring together race directors as well as runners and athletes. So I went out last year and participated on a panel on how to create athletes with disabilities divisions. It's part of kind of the technical assistance work I do through United and stride with my work hat on and also as an athlete participating in them. So the presentation was part creating athletes with disabilities divisions, kind of what's the structure and process for that, but also generally how to engage more runners and athletes of different abilities. And now this coming year, the, the overall theme of the entire conference is I think diversity and inclusion. So it's, you know, athletes with disabilities, it's people of color, it's women, it's, you know, how do you, how do you make 
trail running and ultra running, you know, not this homogenous looking sport that it tends to be these days. So I'm doing a panel with the race directors, similarly kind of themed on, you know, athletes and disability divisions and so forth. And then on Saturday, so the conference kind of switches. It's the first couple of days it's focused on race directing. And then on Saturday, uh, the race directing part ends and then it starts with the runners. So on Saturday, I'm doing a workshop also about guiding. And then this year, you know, every morning at the conference, they do, you know, like a group run where folks go out and run in the mountains and so forth. So this year uh, for two days, Friday with the race directors and then Saturday with the runners, um, we're doing like a little sighted guide training as part of those group runs. So folks will learn, you know, the very basics around sighted guide and be encouraged to sign up on United and Stride, but they'll get a little bit of taste and flavor on how to guide in the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. Before I let you go, I got to ask you about beer. I hear you're into beer. I am. <laughs> For me, beer is an extension of my commitment to, you know, supporting locally owned businesses and things in my community. And much like running, you know, the running community is very similar to the craft local beer community. So I love supporting craft local beer and actually, during the Western States training, uh, I actually got turned on to non-alcoholic craft beer. So I've been really lucky to work with Athletic Brewing Company, which is based in Connecticut. And they're putting out, you know, the best tasting, most craft-like non-alcoholic beer out there. So I supplemented some of that during my Western States training and have continued to uh, to enjoy it and, and drink it as part of my, you know, training and fitness, but also because it tastes really good. So, um, yeah, all types of beer I love except for hoppy IPAs. Amen, right? Yeah, I'm I'm not – that is not my – that is not my jam. You can, you can have the – you can have all the hops. No, I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, no, give me a good lager or, or Belgian Saison and I'm, I'm a happy camper. You aren't brewing any of your own beer, are you? I'm not. I have a home kit system that I used <laughs> once. Okay. And realized that I don't necessarily have the patience for it. And I also don't have the time right now. You know, I go out, you know, like every runner, you know, I go out for five or six hours every Saturday and Sunday for a run. And, you know, that's pushing the envelope with my family and that sort of stuff. So I, I can never take on another hobby like brewing, but I'm always happy to taste home brew and give feedback and enjoy the spoils of it, but I don't have the time or the patience right now. It's a very wise thing to say on a like public, you know, platform. Like I am always here. If, if somebody needs a taster, <laughs> I, I am, I am here to help. <laughs> so I, I'd, I'd like to throw my hat in that ring as well. You know, if uh, yeah, yeah. somebody needs a taster for, for, uh, if you're trying to brew some quality stuff, I'm, I'm here to provide feedback. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and you know, and it's honestly, it's, not intentional, but it's, it's funny how it worked out, you know, between, you know, the running and the craft beer community, not only are they, you know, the most cultish like communities out there, but there's tons of overlap and, you know, there's Facebook pages for, you know, runners or beer lovers who lo love to run, you know, and then I was just out in, I had the opportunity, I'm doing more public speaking and motivational speaking these days. And I was just out in Portland, Oregon for two speaking gigs. And I, I hung out with uh, Cliff Barr, who I've been doing a little bit more work with. They organized an event with the Portland Running Company in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I just learned there, hopefully I'm not spoiling their news, but uh, they're opening up a run pub. 
in Portland. So it's going to be part run store and part pub, which is, you know, the perfect marriage between <laughs> running and beer. That's like peanut butter and chocolate coming together. Well, hey, I want to let you get back to work, but I guess before we wrap up, how would you like to take us out in terms of thoughts to leave us with, things we should be doing? I think for listeners or, or folks who run, who are listening to this, I think a couple of things, one out on the trail, you know, I'm not out there necessarily to inspire folks to run more. Um, but I get that that inspirational piece plays out. So just treat me like you would every other runner out in the course. You know, if you're saying, you know, hey, great job to every other runner, just say, hey, great job, Kyle. You don't have to say you're so inspiring. Just, you know, say great job, keep moving, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was thinking, just ask questions and communicate. Like we talked earlier, if you have questions about what you know, people's different abilities, uh, you know, ask questions in, in, a, in a compassionate way and then get involved in your local community. There's organizations like Achilles International that has chapters all throughout the country that support athletes and runners of all abilities, folks who are blind and visually impaired, amputees. So check out Achilles, check out RWB, which does great work with our veterans. Uh, seek out if you love being outdoors, kayaking, skiing, hiking, you know, look up your local adaptive ski and sports program. They're always looking for volunteers. And then if you're interested in being a sighted guide, again, you know, check out Achilles, but also check out unitedinstride.com. It's a website that helps connect runners who are blind and visually impaired with guides. And the number one barrier for someone with vision loss to get outside and be active is not having a sighted guide. So we're always looking for more sighted guides for a one mile run, a five mile run, or God forbid, a 30 mile run. Just before I let you go, we said you've got this, uh, the US Trail Conference, October 9th. What else is on your plate? Are there any races or events coming up here? So I am doing a 24-hour race. It's called uh, Hamster Wheel 24-Hour in New Hampshire in early November. And then I'll be out at the California International Marathon. It doubles as the United States Blind Marathon Championships. So I'll be running in that. And then my big goal for the winter is I've actually never skied above the tree line. So I'm trying to figure out a way to, you know, do some backcountry skiing, you know, hiking, and then skiing down, whether it's in Utah, California, or Colorado. So I want to try to figure out a way to make that happen as well. Kyle, thank you so much. And uh, good luck with all your work. And uh, we're going to stay tuned and we'll hopefully talk again real soon. Take care, man. Thanks, Kyle. Bye. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Kyle for the conversation. And you can head to kylerobidoux.com to check out the events he'll be speaking at, including the upcoming U.S. Trail Running Conference. We also would really like to encourage you to get involved in your local adaptive sports programs. And I think Kyle in this conversation has done an incredible job of explaining why that matters so much. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.